We're reading the fine print. You'll notice that's not a new one. 13th century plain song. That's been around a little while. Turn, if you would, to Romans this morning. We're turning the page to chapter 12 today. But for our scripture reading, I want to read the doxology that we considered last Lord's Day. So I want to read from verse 33 of the 11th chapter. And then just to the first two most familiar verses of chapter 12. Romans 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who who hath been His counselor? For who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Amen. Linda, reading, and we trust again that the Lord will add His own blessing to the public reading of His Word. Let's bow our heads together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, it is truly of the Father's love Jesus was given. We've read and considered in this epistle of Romans the staggering phrase, you spared not your own Son, but you delivered Him up for us all. How will you not with Him also freely give us all things? And Lord, we take comfort And that truth that what Christ has purchased must and will be applied to each of His blood-bought people. And we ask today that as we come to this new portion of this most essential book that You have revealed to us, that You'll give us the help of Your Spirit. Lord, that perhaps in particular in these verses that are so familiar, that we would not let that familiarity hinder us, that we might with thought and with the help of Your Spirit come before Your Word, these familiar words today. And we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I found it interesting looking at the commentators Commentators were divided over the doxology of chapter 11, whether the words we considered last week were following on from chapters 9 to 11 and that great section about the question of Israel and God's covenant with them. Some we suggested even whether it was a response simply to the words of verse 32. Most perhaps, as I cast my vote in, feeling that the doxology was in conclusion to the whole of chapters 1 to 11, that statement, that outworking of the gospel. Well, wherever the commentators stood on those verses belonging to the whole book or just the previous section, they're all pretty much united that chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and all that follows in the remaining chapters, does flow from the argument of the whole book. It is abundantly clear that Paul's appeals in this section of the epistle with regard to Christian living are built upon the foundation of the Christian doctrine that he has unfolded. And so herein, can I suggest, lies a problem. Just as the church has all throughout its history really vacillated between various expressions of Christian doctrine, doctrinal errors creeping in so often, new errors often introduced in an attempt to answer the previous errors, there is this tendency, and this is among Bible-professing 
Christians. We're not talking about the, the outside people, as it were, false religions and cults and all of that. But among those possessing and possess and did I say possessing? I mean to say possessing and professing, whichever I started and didn't finish saying. Among professing believers, there are these struggles, and I say vacillations. We've talked about it before. We've done extensive thought and study on the issues of legalism and antinomianism, and we've come up with a little illustration of the triangle and the discussion of what we've called line theology. Vacillating back and forth on that line that we need to get off of between a form of legalism, self-righteousness, and then various expressions, various pollutions, if you will, of worldliness. And as we see these vacillations back and forth with understanding and teaching with regard to the doctrines of the Christian religion, it's not a surprise then that we see vacillations we see tendencies and shifts with regard to Christian living, how it is taught and how it is expressed among the Lord's people. And so the gospel preacher always faces the difficulty of discerning his audience on the one hand and of preaching the fullness of the gospel on the other. It's so tempting to preach and emphasize one facet of truth while ignoring other facets because of your perceived needs or your perception of the needs of your people or of the church as a whole. We think about what people are doing in their lives, what people are not doing in their lives, and we come to address that. Well, it is not inappropriate for preachers of truth to address problems to address sins in the lives of the Lord's people just as we address sin and preach the gospel to those that are unsaved and in the world. But the tendency can be to distort our teaching with regard merely to what we see. Try and correct that. This, I say, comes often with disastrous consequences. You think about Rome's conflict with the Reformers. You know, we sometimes have general knowledge of the Reformation, the heroes of the Reformation, and the evils of medieval Romanism and so forth. And you think about what I'm about to suggest, and it kind of catches you by surprise. But one of the Romanists' arguments against the Reformers was that if they preach this gospel of free justification, if they preach... People are justified by an imputed righteousness instead of an infused righteousness, then people will live ungodly lives. It makes logical sense, but yet it's not according to the gospel. If you know anything of the history of the centuries that preceded the Reformation and even followed, there's no bastion of purity. It was the abundance of sin in the Roman church that was one of the motivating factors for Luther to search for truth, to search for answers. Well, the Gospel has answers. The Gospel addresses the practical stuff. It's taking the whole Gospel to the whole man, if you will, that is the Gospel or the task of the Gospel preacher. And I fear that today we come address this portion of Scripture, we all live in a season in which the climate and the nature of the natural heart are much the same as they've been throughout the history of the church. And there is this vacillation back and forth between different forms of error. Between that self-righteousness on one side of the line and that worldliness on the other side of the line. And we well-meaning are seeking to find that point of balance while well, we try and put that illustration so starkly. Self-righteousness and how much worldliness do we need to mingle together in our lives in order to be balanced Christians? And of course the answer is zero of either. It isn't self-righteousness we need. It's genuine holiness. It isn't worldliness we need. It's gospel humility. And yet many today think the only way to have a humble mindset is to say sin doesn't matter and live like the world. 
The only way to get rid of self-righteousness is to mingle a little bit of worldliness in. And that way you won't look so stiff and you won't offend so many people. And this just isn't the Gospel. And so we come today to these words, words that are very familiar to us, words many of us, perhaps some of the older among us, have heard, I don't know if I had to list how many sermons, just in the years of my adolescence and teen and college years prior to going into the ministry. of my life, how many sermons I heard on Romans 12, 1 and 2. And yet I say we come today to the difficulty of preaching one of the most familiar texts in the book of Romans, in many ways with a generation that is weary of hearing it, weary of coming to the truth that is put before us in it. I also am aware of the possibility that in this congregation, there are some, if they've been here for any length of time at all, have perhaps not heard overly many messages on this portion at all, or similar portions. It hasn't been a focus of constant attention. And so wherever we find ourselves in this all too frequent swinging of the pendulum, we come to what is not optional. We come to what is, can we say, not secondary. We come to what is an essential part. It is an inevitable piece of Christianity. And so I want us to come to this new section of Romans. It's not just the opening two verses to be sure the chapters that follow all flow into this theme of godly Christian living. And so I want to come to look at this portion today. I don't want to be overly simplistic. I don't want to attempt to look at both of these verses in one message. It would not be impossible. We have, I had thought much along the way that that would be the case. But what I want to do is to break it down, if it's not too simplistic, to positives and negatives. If you look at the first of these two verses, really all the things that are collected in verse 1 are positive. They're just a straightforward statement of what is going to be true of us and the things we're encouraged, the things that we're urged from an apostolic standpoint to pursue. And of course, when we come to the second verse, the negative comes in because the pursuit of these things is going to mean the leaving off the abandoning of other things. And so, come with me, if you would, today to consider something of this opening challenge, this apostolic charge with regard to gospel living. If we had been confronted with the gospel itself in Romans 1-11, to the truths and the doctrines of this good news of our salvation are going to result in gospel living. And so, Think with me if you would, just today on this opening verse. And there are four pieces of this that I want us to meditate on together today. Reading the verse again together. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Can I suggest you first in the words, the opening phrase, I beseech you therefore, brethren, that here we have the indispensable foundation to Christian living. The indispensable foundation to Christian living. Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren. Well, it's a trite saying, but whenever we come in Scripture to a therefore, we need to pause and see what it's there for. Obviously, Paul is transitioning from what he has taught them in the opening chapters to what he is calling upon them to do in the closing chapters. The opening chapters, while they've not been devoid of admonition with charge, I mean, we paused in chapter 6. There was a big therefore in chapter 6, if you remember, and we'll come to reference that again in a few moments. But now he's moving to give them instruction with regard to what to do with that truth. 
how this truth is going to impact them very practically. How their Christian living is going to look. And so when he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, he brings us, I say, to an indispensable foundation. And the first part of this, if you would understand with me, is this. There's an absolute necessity of new birth. There's real Christianity, there's real Christian living that he's going to put before us here, and it's going to flow out of being real Christians. I beseech you, therefore, brethren. He's not speaking to the lost. He's not speaking to those that are outside. He's not speaking to those that haven't experienced the regenerating power of the Spirit of God. He's speaking to people that have passed from death unto life. All the admonitions, all the practical instruction, all the rules, if you will, all the attention about even how to handle the rules, the clear rules and the rules that quite aren't so clear that he's going to deal with along the way. All of this is applying to those that are born again. All the stuff in here put before someone that's outside of Christ, put before someone that hasn't experienced the reality of the gospel he's just explained in chapters 1 to 11, it's going to leave them in more trouble than they're in to start with. Because if they say, okay, let's start checking these boxes, this will make us right with God. You haven't read chapters 1 to 11. If you approach these practical admonitions, these rules, in that way, the indispensable foundation includes new birth. It includes being born from above. It includes being one of God's own people. And so he calls upon them as brethren. But then when we consider again the transition, how he calls upon them, the absolute necessity of, the, of not only the new birth, but of sound doctrine. This is part of that indispensable foundation. And here's where I think some of the difficulty comes in our current climate. Godly living hasn't been, I speak generally, it hasn't been for the last two generations really presented in the context of sound doctrine. It's been presented in a context of conflicted doctrine. I speak of hybrid theology at times. I talk at times about an attempted hybrid between the Reformed faith and the Arminian faith that has really prevailed in broad evangelical circles for the last two generations. And it has corrupted the perspective of godly living. I fear that there are many today that their initial reaction, their first response when a preacher a counselor, a parent, teacher, whoever begins to challenge them with regard to the stuff in their lives, they shrink back. They've had so much teaching with regard to right and wrong, with regard to do this, don't do that, that hasn't been based on Romans 1 to 11, that they don't want to hear it. They have seen godly living presented in a context of self-righteousness. They've heard godly living preached in a context of bad doctrine. And it is distasteful. And it produces the two pieces of that line theology. For some, it produces a proud, self-righteous spirit. I've got the boxes checked. You don't. You need to get in line. You need to be more like me. Or the other that says... There's really not that many boxes, and mine are all checked, and wound up a little tight, and get over it. I'm living this way, and there's nothing you can say that's going to change my mind. I'm sure we could go around the room and give testimony of professing Christians we know that fit into each of those categories. We could go around the room, perhaps, and give testimony of our own struggles in this regard. How we approach the practical. 
if it's not based on the doctrinal, if it's not based on the therefore of an understanding of chapters 1 to 11, it's going to ultimately be warped. Whatever good intentions, whatever good motives that truly saved people even have in presenting the practical how-to stuff, if it's not based on the Gospel, a thorough understanding and application of the Gospel to the heart and to the mind, it's going to be warped. I'm sure I've used this illustration from Archibald Alexander in previous days here. Archibald Alexander is one of what they call the old Princeton men before Princeton started nosedive in the last century and a quarter or so. But Archibald Alexander gave an illustration about Christian doctrine and Christian living that I think is, is very powerful. He said, if you take the Christian life, our experience, the practical stuff, how we live, and you think of it as wax, like the wax that would be used in sealing an, an old letter to make sure it hadn't been opened along the way, and a seal, say that a, a king or a sovereign or a leader would have to imprint that seal on that warm wax. He said, the seal is like the doctrine and the wax is like the life. Any flaw in the seal, any flaw in the doctrine is going to show up in the wax. Well, so it is with living. Flaws in our doctrine Errors in our understanding of truth are going to show up in how we live. They're going to show up in how we interact with one another. And so, part of the indispensable foundation of good Christian living is going to be good Christian doctrine. I was impressed with this a few months ago. I'm constantly impressed with it in the days in which we live. But I, there was a book recommended to us. I think Jan had come through it in social media and other channels of these various things. And it was a book that had a noble intention of encouraging Christians with a knowledge of their acceptance with God, of their being a child of a loving Heavenly Father, to, to pull them away from the guilt and bondage of, of not feeling accepted and, and being driven by performance, merit-based activity as a Christian. The writer is in ministry currently, broad-spectrum evangelical, as I use the term, had been troubled and plagued with it in his youth and even in his adult life and ministry. Seeking relief from a problem, an oppression that he sensed couldn't really be right. Janet started the book. She was about scarcely a chapter in and said, Honey, I think I want you to read this with me because I, I, this doesn't, something didn't sound just exactly right. Well, so I read it with her and, well, again, I carry that on much further, but it was... In a sense, it was encouraging to me that here's a soul seeking to come out from under the practical oppression of bad preaching that he grew up under. And he was heading in the right direction, but he was limited by his understanding of theology. What he sought to give in one hand, he took back with the other. I was really taken back and a statement in the conclusion almost illustrated that the problems that were present through all the chapters going along. He made the bold statement in the end about our Christian living. God takes the initiative when we let Him. So did we fix the problem? Or did we rephrase the same problem and just try and make people feel about it for a little while 
until they start chewing on that doctrine that he presented. This man didn't just need a practical shift with his approach to Christian living. He needed a theological shift with his understanding of the gospel of the sovereign regenerating grace of God. Of imputed righteousness. I digress. If we're going to get a handle on godliness, on what is clearly a part of Christianity, changed lives, there's an indispensable foundation. And it's called gospel doctrine. Without gospel doctrine, without gospel truth, your application of that truth in the practical stuff of living is going to be warped. Flaws in the seal show up in the wax. And so as Paul comes to these chapters of practical admonition, of charges to believers about changed lives, how we live, how we're different than other people, different than the world. Verse 2 gets to that negative side. Don't be like this. It has to be built on the gospel itself. There's an indispensable foundation. I beseech you, therefore, brethren. The absolute necessity of the new birth. The absolute necessity of sound doctrine. But secondly, we come to the phrase, by the mercies of God. Here I would suggest to you we find a soul-cheering motivation. A soul-cheering motivation. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Now Paul could have used a lot of different terms. It would not have been inappropriate for him to say, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the grace of God. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the sovereignty of God. None of these would have been wrong. None of them would have been an error. All of them really are assumed and understood. But he singles out in this opening appeal the word mercies. How does mercy differ from grace? We think of grace, mercy, we use them at times interchangeably. But there is a nuanced difference. Grace is an unmerited favor. Grace is that which God gives to us that we do not deserve. The Gospel, eternal life, justification. All of these things are by grace because we don't deserve them. He graciously gives them to the undeserving. Mercy differs in its little nuance from grace in that mercy focuses on God withholding that which we do deserve. The psalmist phrased it this way, God has not dealt with us according to our iniquities. And I think in many ways, when it comes to the motivating factor, I mean grace is a motivating factor. Imputation is a motivating factor. Propitiation is a motivating... But to boil it down, to, to a constant mindset, to I say as a soul-cheering motivation, the mercies of God. God has not given me what I deserve. I deserve to be in hell today. I deserve to be in hell forever. But by the grace, by the mercy of God, I'm not in hell. I'm never going to be in hell. And so here, we come to recognize the way in which God has dealt with us. And that in itself is going to help to dispel the false applications of the practical stuff. When we start to embrace a legal spirit, we start to embrace something of the thought, well, other people might deserve the fullness of God's wrath. I might have deserved a little bit. We are all off base. 
When we come to understand there's not a sinner out there as filled with sin as his life might be, as perverse as his life might be, there's not a sinner out there that deserves hell any more than I deserve hell. That's going to color the flavor in which we express Christian living. We start to drift. And this I say is true even for us that understand the gospel. But we don't constantly bring back what we say so often. Gospel thinking. Apply the doctrines of the gospel to this situation. To that situation. To this conversation with that fellow believer. When we start to deviate just a little bit and attach some measure of merit to what we figured out about godly living and that this other brother hadn't got figured out yet. Are we going to have a conversation about that in a gospel way or in a legal way? Are we going to reach a decision even about whether it ought to have a con- we ought to have a conversation about that with this person or not in a gospel way? Or in a legal way. The soul cheering motivation for us is the mercies of God. God hasn't dealt with me the way I deserve to be dealt with. How is that going to impact how I live? I used a phrase for years, I bring it up again here. Can debate something about the terms. I had a visitor one time challenge me in the lobby a lot of years ago about one of the terms I'm going to suggest. John Piper had written a whole book about challenging the term I'm getting ready to use. Uh, I read the book on this challenge from this visitor, and well, I'll finish that thought hopefully in a moment. But do we serve out of guilt? This is where I think the church of the last couple generations has been without an understanding of the doctrines of grace. has been service out of guilt, out of bondage. Somehow I got to make God pleased with me by what I do. And I use the phrase and I continue with it. Do we serve out of guilt or out of gratitude? Piper's contention and this visitor's suggestion is that we don't even serve out of gratitude. But yet when I read Piper and I saw the direction he's coming, he's approaching gratitude from the standpoint of paying God back. Yeah, you gave me a gift. You know, you, you bailed me out of jail or whatever and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay that back now. Well, I don't think gratitude is necessarily the word for that. People can use it in that way. But the mindset of, I've been granted a gift I could never repay. It'd be an insult to suggest I was trying to repay. I'm just overwhelmed with thankfulness. I'm overwhelmed with gratitude that by your mercies, you haven't dealt with me the way I really deserve to be dealt with. And my change of heart toward you, my change of life toward you is flowing out of that gratitude, out of that thankfulness for this that I could never purchase, I could never repay. And so as Paul charges us with Christian living, with newness of life, with stuff we used to do that we don't do anymore, with stuff the world puts in front of us that we don't take in. He beseeches us by the mercies of God. It's a soul-cheering motivation. And it's a gospel heart that takes gospel thinking to all the particulars of the practical stuff. Let me come quickly to a third statement from this opening verse. Here can I suggest we have a scripturally vivid characterization. He says here by the mercies of God that you 
present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable. Let me just pause here. The sacrifice, that's that scripturally vivid characterization. In our authorized version, other versions as well, it, it seems that it's, it's modified by but one term, the word living. But it's actually modified by all three words, living, holy, acceptable. It's a sacrifice that has these three characteristics. But I say there's a scripturally vivid characterization. Sacrifice. Now that's a pretty foreign word to our modern environment. It just doesn't sound so happy. Well, again, that's where a mind that doesn't really work through the gospel gets off track. I say this is scripturally vivid. For the Jews to be sure, Gentiles were familiar with sacrifice in their own right. They weren't the scripturally employed, gospel-focused sacrifices of the Old Testament. There were sacrifices in Rome. I remember in history class one day hearing one of the, the blood cults in the Roman Empire. It was a, a baptism that members of that cult underwent. A baptism with the blood of bulls. We didn't quite take it to the point of whether it was sprinkling or immersion, but anyway. A sacrifice. That's part of the language. That's part of the, the basic, foundational, initial appeal of the practical stuff here in Romans. How is this change of life? How is the practical part of Christianity described? I say it's a scripturally vivid characterization. It's described as sacrifice. That cuts against... A fleshly mind. That cuts against the, the thought processes of the unregenerate mind. The unregenerate mind says, I'm my own man. I do what I want to do. Don't get in my way. A godly mind says, I am not my own man. To borrow Paul's words elsewhere, the inspired Word of God elsewhere, ye are not your own. Ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your bodies and in your spirit. Which That's simple enough. But when change of life and godliness has been preached in a bondage spirit, it's been promoted by people that are not happy and are not rejoicing in the gospel. People look at it and say something's wrong with that. And sadly, if they don't come to the gospel itself, have their minds and hearts trained in gospel thinking and an understanding of the therefore of our text, it gets translated to thinking godliness, living distinct from the world, isn't a necessary part of Christianity. It produces a non-Christian spirit. And so here, we come to face very plainly. How is this life characterized? Is it one by saying nothing matters? Is it one by saying I can do whatever I want? Worldliness, selfishness, is not the answer to bad doctrine with regard to Christian living. This characterization is one of sacrifice. But notice again those three words. This sacrifice is living. This is not the offering of our bodies to atone for our sins. This is a living devotion and dedication to God. Interestingly, some of the sacrifices, many of the sacrifices of the Old Testament sacrificial system were not sin offerings. They were the rendering of 
gifts, meal offerings, peace offerings. They were the rendering of service that were subsequent to the sin offering. Well, not pursue it, but I'm of the persuasion that in a sense that was the difference between Cain and Abel's offerings. Cain brought of the fruit of his labors, but he didn't bring them based on the sin offering. He brought them in lieu of the sin offering. Abel brought the sin offering first. His labors dedicated to God flow out of that. And you work that through the whole of the Old Testament system. Our sacrifice is living. Our sacrifice is not a harm to us. Some people think the mindset, if, if I have to submit to anything, I'm being harmed. It triggers me. To submit to a creator, a sovereign, whose laws are all focused on producing good for me and everyone else. Whose paths are that pathway whereby real happiness and joy are experienced. And all the hurt that comes from not loving God and not loving my neighbor is pushed away. That's a submission. It's not selfish. But man, the benefits to me are eternal. They're infinite. And to deviate from this path is to hurt myself and to hurt others. There's a gospel mindset about a living sacrifice. The sacrifice is to be holy. We look at holy, and rightly so, in the context of good stuff as opposed to bad stuff. But at the heart of holiness is separation. It is consecration. It's set apart for specific use. Holy vessels. The candlestick in the tabernacle was holy. You had a candlestick in your house. It wasn't holy. It could be used anywhere. But that one was only to be used there. It was set apart for that place, for that purpose. Well, our living sacrifice, our sacrifice is to be living and it's to be holy. We're set apart unto God. We are great. Because when we lived like we were our own, what did we do? We brought more judgment upon ourselves. We brought more harm upon ourselves and upon our neighbors. What a relief to be set apart unto God. And then it's to be acceptable or pleasing. You think even of that. And here's where we do need gospel discernment. Because my life is to be pleasing to God. We read of our prayers and various service ascending as the aroma of sweet incense unto God. Here's where we need the discernment of that which is meritorious, that which is worthy and perfect and can purchase God's favor, which is impossible for any sinner. But yet as a redeemed sinner, come more specifically as an adopted child, to walk in newness of life, to walk in the ways of the, the new family, pleases our Heavenly Father. One of the difficulties of, I say, the modern age in reaction against the bondage theology of the last couple generations is a lot of people struggle with getting that. You, you think it's a bondage? You think it's wrong? For me to include stuff in my life and exclude other stuff from my life from the standpoint of whether or not it's pleasing to God or displeasing to God. 
Here, I say, is a scripturally vivid characterization of Christian living. A sacrifice that is living, that is set apart, that is pleasing unto God. And then lastly today, there's an essential qualification. Here, he closes the verse with this phrase, which is your reasonable service. There are two terms here, reasonable and service, that commentators have to wrestle with. And this is one of those times again where I think to try and narrow it down and answer the question is to miss the point. Paul's used broad terms here. Some suggest the terms are vague. I think a better term is they're broad, reasonable. It has the idea of being reasonable in the normal sense in which we use that, but also of being rational, of being logical. There's thought in it. It's not irrational. And then the term service. It can be general with regard to duties and activities and so forth. It can have a little more specific meaning of worship. We talk about coming here for a Sunday morning service. Sometimes we bring the words together, worship service. Well, again, I think the answer is yes. Does it deal with service? Yes. Is it dealing with worship? Yes. Is it dealing with something reasonable? Yes. Is it dealing with something that's logical, that's rational? Yes. I had a professor, I'm sure with the Lord many decades now, he was quite elderly when I was very young. But he used the phrase logical liturgy with reference to this phrase in Romans 12.1. Whatever summary we have of it, the essential qualification of this service is that it is going to be rightly oriented to God. Our service, it's not mindless. It is thoughtful. And our service has the characteristic of worship. We are bought with a price as we've just discovered. A natural outworking of that is going to be this reverential awe. This happy submission to the One that has done so much. For us. To conclude anything other than a changed life, a godly life belongs to a Christian, is to twist the gospel beyond all recognition. What Paul is going to deal with in these practical chapters, some of it is crystal clear. And part of it, he's actually going to get into the parts of life that aren't crystal clear. Where even Christians can not reach the same conclusion on a particular practical matter. What do we do about that? He gives gospel advice on handling that. But I say here, as Paul transitions from doctrine to practice, and again, both are present in both sections. But the appeal is strong. The appeal is something that's not optional. And yet the appeal is given to brethren. He doesn't write, though he could. And at times Paul brought the hammer down. He doesn't write as an offended lawgiver. He writes as a brother. And he writes with the assumption that the brethren to whom he's writing are going to respond favorably because they're born of the Spirit of God. The Spirit is going to work this in them. The Spirit works that. I've talked in broad terms about the last couple generations in the church in poor theology. The Spirit led many a Christian through those seasons to live and have gospel hearts. I remember Dr. Cairns used to Maybe try and cool the jets on some of us young seminarians coming in to see the doctrines of grace, realizing church had sold us a bill of goods and some bad doctrine. 
And he made the phrase, the statement often, there are many Christians that are better than their theology. That's simply because the Spirit of God dwelt in their hearts. They might not could have articulated or passed an exam with some of those doctrines wrestled through. But yet, the Gospel reached to them by the Spirit of God. The sad corollary to that is you can be raised in a pristine, reformed environment and not have it penetrate the heart of gospel thinking and gospel living when your head is supposedly screwed on right. We need both. And Paul writes to a people that have both. They have Romans 1 to 11. They can work through that. And they have chapter 8, the Spirit of God, to walk in newness of life. This is the positive side of the two verses. Lord willing, next time we come to the not conformed to this world, let's bow our heads together. Lord, we come and ask that even as we've just closed our thoughts with reference to Your Spirit, that Your Spirit might be present in every believing heart. Lord, that we might with the humility that the Spirit affords, the flesh wants to overturn. That we might by Your Spirit have those two things that the flesh can't bring together. Holiness and humility. We confess again, our flesh can produce self-righteousness. It is expert at it. And our flesh can produce worldliness. It is expert at it. And so we pray, give us more of the Spirit. But even this is not a mystical, mindless thing. How much of the mind is wrapped up in this opening verse? That we are impacted by truth. That Your Spirit never acts upon us contrary to the truth. And so let us hear the truth. Lord, bless us as we part one from another. Give us grace in meditating on this all-important theme of good, changed, godly lives. We ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.